Welcome to Opus Private Clients Wealth Style Podcast. All of the material discussed on our podcasts have specific themes, and that's to move your wealth and lifestyle forward, increase your purpose, and provide you with clarity and confidence. Opus's mantra is always forward. We have found that regardless of one's wealth, moving your lifestyle forward is the number one priority for our clients. On our podcast, we'll share our rich 35 years of experience in designing strategies, share clients' experiences, and introduce resources that have positively impacted our clients. We trust that you will enjoy our direct, transparent, and realistic approach to positively impacting the quality of you and your family's lives. Now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Opus Private Client Wealth Style Podcast. My name is Yvonne Watanabe. Uh, welcome. Excited to have on my great partner, George Papanikolaou. What's going on, George? How you doing, buddy? I'm great, man. I'm great. Well, I'm excited about the podcast today in particular, just because I think it's super relevant. So why don't you go ahead and, and introduce our, our guest today, because I know he's a good friend of yours, so I want to make sure you get the opportunity to do it justice. Absolutely. So like, you, like Yvonne said, Great topic for discussion. It's all over the news and every circle of conversation I've been around. Um, and that's the global oil and gas trade, right? So another level of excitement to add that our guest today happens to be one of my oldest and best friends in the entire world, Mr. Nicholas Contos. Not only one of my best friends, but one of the most well-respected individuals in the maritime oil and gas industry. So welcome, Mr. Nick. We are unbelievably happy to have you here with us today. Oh, happy to be here. Happy to be here. Looking forward to it. How's everything going? <laughs> awesome, man. Kind of want to just jump right in and start off by uh, having you tell us a little bit more about yourself, uh, about your maritime experience at sea, and how you ended up as a member of Concord Maritime. Well, I mean, uh, I, I started off at a young age uh, in college at the fine Institute of SUNY Maritime College, went there. Got my uh, third mate's unlimited license, U.S. Coast Guard, and a bachelor's in uh, business administration, and then moved up and started sailing immediately after graduation. Started working on Jones Act um, tankers, which are U.S. tankers, uh, MRs, that would trade around the U.S. coast, uh, Long Beach, California, uh, Houston, Corpus Christi, in that, in that uh, trade, clean trade. And then uh, slowly evolved into, I was, uh, got to a point where I was moved up the ranks up to from third officer after a certain amount of seat time up to second officer. And then from second officer, I, I uh, sailed on the tankers as well and then moved over. I wanted to change uh, aspects. The maritime industry is so evolved in so many different uh, fields. So I moved over to the container field for about six months to a year. And I was on a small container feeder vessel in the Persian Gulf for about uh, Six months there, uh, trading between uh, Dubai and Kuwait back and forth with uh, high sensitive U.S. cargoes. And then I entered into the U.S. food aid business on general cargo ships and uh, brought basically U.S. Uh, food aid from uh, U.S. Gulf down to West Africa, East Africa, all around the world. And that was definitely an experience and a half. And then uh, from my sailing days, I uh, got an opportunity to move shoreside into a vessel manager position operating vessels around the world with a company called Hydemar Incorporated and was there for about eight years until about 2018. And during my ranks at, uh, at uh, Hydemar, moved up from vessel manager up to fleet manager into the Sigma tanker pool, where we grew the pool up to 
uh, 57 Aframax tankers and, uh, and operate them worldwide. And uh, from there, we moved over to Concord Maritime, me and four, five other people. And we started up Concord Maritime, where I am now. And uh, just to give a brief, Concord Maritime started in 2018. Uh, it's an independent provider of commercial management services in the international deep sea logistic markets that operate merchant shipping pools for third-party owners and investors. So what that means is that um, an owner, a bank, an investor will give us management of the vessel. We will trade it globally throughout the markets based on our experience. And uh, in the spot market, there's the spot market and the time charter market. And uh, we will trade them in the spot market and, uh, and work them that way. And we trade physical freight, so moving the product from A to B uh, through different modes of uh, transportation that way. But all of it's bulk, crude, dirty petroleum product is what we focus on. So, so let's kind of explain a little bit on that. What's the difference between like clean and dirty uh, tanker markets? So we are focused on the dirty markets, which is the crude the fuel oils, the VGOs, the carbon black feedstocks, the 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 black the black oil, uh, the clean is the jet fuels, gasolines. What uh, is the refined products is considered the clean trade, and uh, we feed the refineries. Refineries uh, with our vessels, the refineries uh, refine the product into various product. Gasoline being forty percent of one barrel is about forty percent of it is uh, gasoline, and uh, the rest through jet fuel, etc. Down the road, fuel oils, residuals, petrochemicals. So, so, it being the one of the probably one of the most popular topics today, or talked about topics today. Tell us a little bit about the 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 global oil trade, like trade patterns and so on and so forth. Like what's happening? Everybody knows like what's happening in Russia is affecting it. But you and I have had conversations. We always have conversations around this. On it's it's just crazy. So. You know, kind of give us a, give us a, a little bit of a, your insight onto uh, that oil trade today. Well, the oil distribution worldwide is in a, a complete, I wouldn't call it disarray, a disruption right now in the markets of a traditional trade flow of cargoes, which would normally be, let's say, a, you know, during the past year, a U.S. Gulf uh, light crude into the European refineries reloading a residual out of the Russian markets or crude either into the European refineries or back into the U.S. So that was your, your, your classic A to B on your uh, trade within the Atlantic region on Aframax tankers. Um, every refinery has a blend of crudes they take in. Every place in the world, there's thousands of types of crudes uh, with different densities and specifications. So Every refinery likes a certain blend or type to, to be the most efficient in refining what they want to refine at that time. This is what all the chemical engineers and everybody figure out on their, as we call them, their little drugstore of uh, crudes. And they blend it up and they make their product as they need to make the most efficient during the time demand. So right now, obviously, gas is a high demand. And um, during the winter months, you have more of a, a diesel type so it's uh, summertime coming, driving season. You're going to more of a gasoline type of a uh, trade. So uh, refining. I mean, I'm, that's not my uh, forte. Uh, we just bring the crude in. We let the, uh, and the refineries figure out what they need to do on their, on their end. So on our side, sorry, on, go our ahead. Side, yeah, on our side, we just 
we, we bring the, the crudes from worldwide into the uh, refineries or out of the trade with various uh, customers of ours. And uh, we feed the refineries along the East Coast, the U.S., U.S. Gulf, West Coast, et cetera. Nick, I, I just had a, a question sort of back, piggybacking off of what George was saying. You know, right now the headlines are huge, right? So today it looks like Shell just declared they're going to have a $5 billion loss in Q1 based off of, you know, having to pull out of Russia. And then, you know, last week, I think Biden mentioned that he was going to tap into a significant amount of the, the oil reserves. For the for the listening audience, like what does that mean for the things that they actually care about, right? What does that actually translate to the price of gas at the tanks, you know, at the at the at the oil at the gas pumps? You know, right now, I think I filled up for a hundred and twenty dollars the other day. It was you know obscene, right? So, mm-hmm. what does that actually translate to, like the consumers, or how do I view what the noise is out in the market when I read the news, and what does that actually translate to me personally? Okay, that's a very good question. Well, let's say that the freight and the physical side of the market has definitely increased with the disruption of the market due to sanctions, due to uh, the flow of oil. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, the last barrel, I believe, of Russian crude or fuel allowed into the U.S. is the cutoff date is April 22nd. Now, does that mean it needs to be refined and processed by then or needs to be discharged by then? I'm not sure, but I, I know that um, for us, we're not involved in that type of trade at the moment or for the foreseeable future. What does mean is a lot of vessels are now being displaced because they are doing cargoes from Russia to China or India, et cetera, on there, which the natural demand of vessels and disruption of vessels, the trade flow is now not limiting the amount of vessels around here, which uh, so simple supply and demand will uh, result in higher freight rates. Now, that's just the shipping side of it. It's not so much on the uh, refining part of it because demand is increasing. We did just come out of a pandemic or in the process of coming out of a pandemic. The prior pandemic, U.S. producing was approximately 13 million barrels a day. Right now, before Biden's release, which is scheduled to start mid-May, I've been hearing in the markets, we'll be starting releasing. Uh, the 1 million barrels for the next six months to equivalent to the amount that was. So that would bring us up to about 12, 12.8. Our current production in the U.S. is 11.8 million barrels. It'll bring us up to 12.8, which is equivalent to the 13, uh, which was pre-pandemic, was the production in the U.S. So it, it almost puts us a, it increases the amount of production the U.S. is putting back in the market and helps the uh, refiners, let's say in Europe, who are weeding off the Russian supply into and trying to supplement it as much as they can. Now, other countries are obviously turning on the taps as much as they can. Mm-hmm. But as you know, OPEC Plus, they have agreements, which was placed in during the pandemic. And they, they are sticking with their 400,000 barrels per day production uh, until it expires in the fall. So what the US has done is pretty much tried to, as quickly as possible, bring it back up into the pre-pandemic levels because demand is there. And the agreement that was put in place is not meeting the, the, with the catalyst of an invasion and the disruption of markets is completely throwing the markets out of, out of whack. Mm-hmm. So we're, oil is severely backwardated, which means that right now, oil is a lot higher than it will be in May, in June, in July. So the short term, everybody's going to feel pinched. Long term, 
it should stabilize in, in a way where everybody's going to, but at the moment it's, um, it's definitely affecting everybody. And is that usually what, I mean, is it, you think that's a function of the supply and demand, or do you think that also has something to do with, and I'm making an assumption here, so correct me if I'm wrong, but generally speaking, my, my thought process was that the price of oil goes down during the summertime versus during the wintertime here. Is that, is that, is that a function of that happening or it's sort of all of those things all combining okay. into one? Oil is an evolving beast. It is something that is ingrained in everyone's life. If yep. you are part of you know, the, it doesn't matter what you're doing. If you pick up a cup of coffee, if you're moving your plastic, your everything is involved with oil in mm-hmm. one. The U.S. is one of the biggest consumers of that. And the big wave that is coming, obviously, of, or the push, which is needed for the green and the um, solar is required for the, for the population increase in the world. doesn't mean the, the, the production will decrease. It just means there needs to be a different supplement other than what's in place right now. Got it. Is what- well, well, so that said, Nico, right? How much? So it, like you said, it's in plastics. It's in literally everything that we touch. So how much of the price of a barrel of oil is actually speculation, is based on speculation? It's very much so. It is evolve. It, everything affects oil price. Everything. Geopolitical, demand, supply, obviously pandemics, uh, trading, hedging. Everything affects the price of oil. And every little thing from stats that the EIA produces, APIs produces every week, affects it. Job numbers, the, the whole U.S. economy affects it. Um, the world economy affects it. And the and then that's it, it's it's a daily movement. Uh, and no one can ever guess the price of oil. And that's why you always see somebody, oh, it could hit two hundred dollars. Oh, it could hit one hundred fifty dollars. Oh, it could hit one hundred dollars. No one knows. I mean, you can theoretically say whatever you want to say. But I mean, in long term, anything tomorrow it can change. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a week from now, whatever the person, what I'm saying right now can change completely because no one knows what's going to happen tomorrow. As we've, it's proven from the pandemic, from the invasion, nobody knows. Now somebody can see that the, the the general supply and demand of the world and the population growth and go feed through that uh, safe trajectories, and based on that, yes, but. All the variables. There's too many variables that affect the, the price of oil and the barrel. So, so the the so the release of the of the oil reserve doesn't necessarily trans. What you're what I'm hearing is it doesn't necessarily translate to a direct reduction in the prices at the gas pump, right? There no. are many different things that sort of factor into that price. So, just because it, there's more reserve exactly. being released, may not may not actually reduce the cost of that. It may translate to something else in the economy, maybe having a reduction in cost. Maybe it's you know, other goods because it costs a little bit less to actually transport it, but you know, it may not translate directly to what, we're, what most people would think about right away. Is that, is that fair? I would say so. It, in all honesty, it should, right? It should affect the price, should bring the yep. price down. Yep. In real, will it? I hope so. We all hope so because it doesn't just affect us. It affects the farmer who's trying to produce, you know, move his tractors. Who's trying to plant his product. It affects the. It affects everybody, and then which will alter the 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 snowball effect of a high price of oil and gas is not good for the world. Unfortunately, right. I mean, right. everybody likes that. I would say a fair compromise is anywhere between the seventy-five and eighty, maybe eighty-five dollar range. And then what happened during the pandemic? was when everybody pulled out of production and closed the taps, 
it is proven that it's very hard to bring back online and bring new investors when the push is to so quickly when the push is for the green energy, which is needed. There's, there's no doubt about it, but it's not going to happen overnight. I mean, uh, predictions is for 2030, 2050, et cetera, but we're, still, we're in 2022. I mean, we've got a long ways to go. So, I mean, it's, uh, I, I would, everybody would love to turn the switch, but it's, it's not that easy. Yeah, you had sent me an amazing article about Mexico's pledge to end exports of crude by 2023 because they were going to invest in their infrastructure to refine themselves. So like you were talking about speculation and prices, what do you think the effects of something like that uh, will have on the price of oil? You know, here, one of the people uh, referenced in the, or that was uh, quoted in the article was Chris Papanikla, no, no relation to me. Papanikla is like the Smith in Greek. So, but he was, uh, works for CR Weber in Greenwich and uh, he was quoted doubting that Mexico would have enough uh, refined product demand to actually end exports in crude. So is that again, just kind of adding to the speculation and, you know, giving the green light for, for those traders to just kind of inflate the price of oil for a little bit longer? Well, this is where the politics get involved because the president of Mexico obviously has this ambition of becoming self-sufficient, a refined product, and building a, the, one of the largest refineries in, in New Mexico to produce enough refined product for the country. So right now, obviously, the, tr- the trade is U.S. crude supplies the U.S. refineries, two-day voyage away. They, lo- they, they refine the product, and they get shipped back down to uh, Mexico, the clean product. So this is the agreement they have um, in the, the refineries there. PMI, who is also a Pemex, is also where 50% owners of the Deer Park refiner in Shell. They have now um, taken 100% control from Shell from that uh, terminal. So they would technically be exporting to that terminal in the US in Deer Park, Texas. It would be refinery and bring it back down until the dose focus refinery comes up in line. Now, will it, is it going to reduce production? Yes, it will reduce production. Now, the US refinery in the US Gulf. United States Atlantic Coast feed off this heavy crude. Now, heavy crude is a uh, the density, the sour. It, it, that's what they were built on, and it's very, very. It's you need to build a new refinery in the U.S. pretty much to take in a different type of crude, from what I've understood. I mean, again, this is not my uh, expertise, but this is what I've understood, and it thrives off the the heavy sour crude. Now, there's this heavy sour crude is. Not only in Mexico, it's also in, in, in uh, Venezuela, which is obviously sanctioned at the moment. And uh, you know, you, I wouldn't be surprised if you start seeing some type of uh, uh, diplomatic or permits being pushed uh, from the oil majors here in refineries. If Mexico starts reducing their production to the levels they're saying, almost extinct, then you might see a push for a uh, release of some Venezuelan barrels. Now, this isn't uh, confirmed, nor nor I've heard anything, but I, I understand there is some kind of uh, push for this. So we'll see what happens, um, which would obviously change the markets again. Because when you take out a country like Venezuela or Libya at the time or Russia, this all affects the world production of oil and the amount of it on the table. So, And, and the refiners all demand of what they need and where. This because I don't know how many people have friends or family outside of the United States, but kind of talk a little bit about the price of of gasoline here. And (laughs) we could use Greece, for example, you know, they go by liters. 
why is it so much more expensive in Europe than it is here? And and everyone obviously everyone feels it at the pump here. There it's it's an even bigger shutter, and it's you know they per capita do not earn nearly as much as the United as people in the United States. Well, I mean, it comes simply that nowhere in Europe really has their own supply. Everything has to come in. The U.S. still has its own supply. It still uses its own supply, which definitely helps on the cost. I mean, that's 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 definitely part of it. They have a refinery. They refine it and they sell it. And these um, national oil companies, you know, are, are taking care of it and they bring it in. They have these contracts in place. It's a different type of, uh, uh, I'd say, business platform. To be honest, I, I you know, yeah. Because how much is it per liter now? I I I, can't, I don't know. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think they said it was like six euro a liter. It's insane. Unbelievable. Um, in a place like Venezuela, where my family's from, a liter of water is a hell of a lot more expensive than a liter of gasoline. Yeah, that's um, crazy. You know, it, it's 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 amazing. Um, yeah, I mean, Ivan, you're, you're I mean, you're obviously a Venezuelan background. Have you heard anything in the, from home front or any family members in the possibility of uh, P, uh, PDVSA coming back into the markets again? Uh, the unsanctioned markets you know is- i'm not i'm not even sure i i try not to keep up with uh what's <laughs> with what's going on over there um i yeah. think it's better for my mental space to, to kind of uh to kind of separate yes. from from uh, the tragedies going on over there but no i mean yeah. i think um you know i i have no idea what's going on in terms of the, the the oil production over there you know i remember when it when it changed i don't know 15 years ago um that was a huge deal with Bevesa, but now mm. you know I'm, I'm not sure where, where they're going to end up yeah, I'm not. I'm not so, quite sure. So we shall see. We shall see. You know, you said how it's 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 a it's always a crazy market, always evolving market. Would you say in the last 24 months, it's it's just different than normal? You know, we went oh, yeah. especially oh, yeah. as the U.S. Like you know, we went from energy basically virtual independence to now we are searching for that that gap, right, to fill that gap. So can you kind of talk to us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, easily. I, I believe the the rig count alone pre pandemic was eight over eight hundred, and now we're at six something. I mean, that's increasing from the the four hundreds it was during the pandemic, if not less. Um, don't quote me on those numbers. This is just off the top of my head, but I'm just uh, and the production, as I mentioned before, was uh, thirteen million barrels per day to right now we're at 11.8 during the pandemic. I think it went down towards the uh, single digits, maybe nine, uh, but it was still being produced, obviously, because it has to go somewhere um, that you can't turn off every tap. Some places are not uh, able to do that. So it, it's definitely where we were in being, I think it's more of trying to turn everything back on and get an investment back into the industry to uh, get this as quick as possible. And obviously, the only way of getting it back on as quick as possible is releasing SPR barrels, in my opinion. But that's just my opinion. And that because it was just sitting there in tank, ready to be released, where you don't need to, you know, get it out of the well. Got it. You know, Nico, what, what's your, you know, if you had a crystal ball, where, where do you think sort of the <laughs> industry is, is, is going, right? What do you think? What, what, what's, what's in for the future of oil? And, and what do you think? you know, is your best bet for, for what's going to take place in, in the short term, given sort of the, the crisis over in, in Russia but, or in the Ukraine, but also uh, sort of long term for the industry as a whole? Well, uh, the, in the, the effects of Ukraine is not short term. 
because because these sanctions are in place, it doesn't mean once the, it's over, you're going to be like, okay, come back, let's uh, start doing mm. business again. It doesn't work like that. It just simply doesn't because there are repercussions for actions. And and I unfortunately, it will be a market probably not being used for a while, especially saying, I mean, there needs time to wean off of it, which I believe Europe has pledged or tried to pledge to have by this winter, which, I mean, that takes a long time. It's not, it's not an easy thing to do. Where are those barrels and natural gas we saw them by? Well, that's where the world will have to figure it out. They're trying to increase production as much as they can from other sources. Because obviously Russia was a big, a uh, big producer, and they're also a member of the OPEC Plus. So I mean, they, it's definitely a conflicting uh, story. I'm sure you've all seen in the headlines there the talks of Iran and Iran nuclear deal, and uh, I wouldn't. Put it past that you might start seeing Iranian barrels come back into the market, the Western market as well, into the European refineries. Now, is that, you know, you can read through the headlines and everything. Is that really the ultimate goal to get these barrels back in the market? I don't know. I don't know. But I mean, it's just, there's so many, there's enough oil out there. It's just with sanctions, wars, uh, troubled economies, production issues is what the problem is in terms of the, and, and it's, you know, it's literally, you know, making sure you're doing good business all the time, which is, I mean, that's what we do. We just make sure we're keeping our heads uh, above, above the water and we're keeping our noses clean and we move on and we supply and refineries as uh, best we can. Yeah. It's, it's a super interesting point that you're making, right? Because the, the reality is you want to be, so, you, you know, for example, you want to cut Russia off, you know, when they said it was going to be done, but their oil is still coming in for like the next month or so. Right. You yeah. know, you, yeah. you, you, in, in an ideal world, you say, okay, you know, we're going to cut you off. The cutoff happens today, but the reality of life is that it continues to come in partly because frankly, we need it. Right. Yeah, you know, exactly. you, you don't want to be doing business with, with, you know, um, bad parties, but the reality is that there's sort of life and the cost of goods and the cost of doing business. And what does that mean to the US economy if the cost of goods and inflation continues to rise because everything is costs more because the cost of gasoline to transport those things costs more money? Like there's a trickling effect to a lot of these different pieces. So I, I think you're you're uh you're making a ton of sense and sort of illuminating for me the 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 reality of the situation versus what ideal you know what idealism looks like. Yeah, exactly. I mean it, 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 will it come off? I believe I believe it will. Uh, when uh, you know everybody's trying to do as quick as possible, but at the same time, kind of protect the the world and the mm-hmm. population at the same time. So uh, we'll see. Time will tell uh, where the industry will be in three years from now. I couldn't tell you. No one can tell you. I can I can make something up. Anybody can make something up. But uh, I mean, I, I couldn't. I mean, who knew a pandemic was coming? The whole world was going to shut down. Yeah. Nobody. I mean, we were in the in the middle of a very good shipping. Uh, freight market uh, evolving into the 2020 and uh, markets, and all of a sudden, like a light switch, gone. Everybody started storing oil and put it in floating storage, and that. And then they worked on that for a while, and then that, once that went away, just had tons of ships in the market with nowhere to move them. So it's uh, it's nice to see the container market, the dry bulk market, the 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 tanker market now, the the world shipping markets all around are doing well, which is nice to see. Containers obviously had a huge backlog. I mean, 
Uh, you could just, I'm sure you've seen the news with, uh, in California, but this is not my industry at all. But, uh, you know, you get, you get, we get the information with the congestion there was 115 ships sitting offshore. And now it's probably down to 35, which is good mm-hmm. because they cut out a lot of regulation, uh, a lot of uh, uh, nighttime, you know, it was uh, nighttime. We're not allowed to do any operations in nighttime truck regulations that I had out there in California and stuff. But uh, a lot of that has been, they cut through the red tape on that and got the industry moving to catch up again. So that then they can sustain it. So once they catch up, I'm sure the regulations will come back and force again if they're not already in place and get back to a normal supply chain again. Got it. Well, awesome. Well, Nico, as we kind of wrap up the conversation again, I think you brought a lot of uh, really interesting points of the conversation on something that I think is on everybody's mind. So we really, really appreciate that. Um, as we kind of wrap up, what what is one thing that you want to make sure that you sort of get across or one thing that you want to make sure that the audience takes away from the conversation? Let's hope everything here is short term in terms of pricing and the the, the war and the in the global economy and uh, we should be able out of, out of this soon and avoid any types of super inflations or recessions that follow that. So, I mean, that's what our ultimate goal here is in the short term, but uh, in the long term, it's just. Let's live our lives. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that, man. And where can where can the listening audience, if they want to for, find out more information about you, about the company Concord Maritime, like where where can they go to find out some more information on that? I mean, we're at uh, concordmaritime.com. Um, all our information is there. You can reach out to us through that. Amazing. Well, again, we really, really appreciate the time and the conversation. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. And, and thank you to the listening audience for tuning in to another Opus Well Style podcast. Please click below to subscribe for upcoming episodes. Thank you so much. Be well. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Style podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by PAS, Guardian, or Opus Private Client, LLC, and opinions stated are their own. Data and rates used were indicative of market conditions as of the date shown. Opinions, estimates, forecasts, and statements of financial market trends are based on current market conditions and are subject to change without notice. Yvonne Watanabe and George Papanakolo are registered representatives and financial advisors of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS member FINRA SIPC. Financial representatives of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Opus Private Client LLC is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. Opus Private Client LLC is not registered in any state or with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission as a registered investment advisor. Yvonne's California Insurance License Number 0H44206. Compliance Approval 2022-134774 expires March of 2024.